0: From the Medical Republic, I'm Wendy John. This is The Tea Room. Now, if you're like almost every other GP practice across the country, your phones are running off the hook and you're uncertain as to whether all your staff will be able to turn up each day. Supply of vaccines is tricky, but the demand is extremely high. So in this time of COVID overwhelm, our guest today might have a few hacks and tips for efficient practice management. Welcome, Dr. Nathan Pinsky from Onsite Doctors. How are you today?
1: I'm very well, Wendy. It's a beautiful day in Melbourne and another year of COVID.
0: Look, I chatted to a GP in Queensland recently, and they're even questioning whether they should be rolling out the paediatric vaccine because they just don't have the capacity, not for any other reason. Is that something you're facing in Melbourne?
1: Uh, Absolutely. I think it's increasingly complicated with uh, young children because of the Uh, time commitment to provide the vaccine, going through the consent process with the parents. We got it fairly sophisticated, uh, certainly in the clinics that I'm associated with. So I'm I'm associated with a group of practices uh, where I was an owner that I sold um, about six months ago. But in that process and working with uh, the team, we got it to a fairly sophisticated point where we could vaccinate on average at least 10 people per vaccinated per hour. And it was a very smooth process. So we're doing in some of our larger clinics, we were doing up to 500 people per day. Uh, But when you're talking about children, all of a sudden you've got maybe mum and dad and they might come from separated families, there may be consent issues. There are more concerns when you're vaccinating a child as to an informed mature adult. And that will cause all sorts of uh, challenges in terms of just being able to do it smoothly.
0: So it takes a lot more time, but hang on, let me just step back, 500 vaccinations in a day. What sort of systems did you have in place to make that happen?
1: Uh oh, look, we um, we actually did a whole lot of work to try and refine the process. And I had the benefit and I have to give a huge, um, you know, thanks to my friend, Dr. Makesh Hackerwell. Uh, my practice manager and I went out to his practice back in March. He was one of the first to start vaccinating, if not the first. And we looked at what he was doing to set up and we essentially looked at his workflow and process and we replicated that in our practices. So we, we had uh, up to four or five vaccinators in our larger clinics working uh, every day. Uh, we uh, set up systems where everything was effectively done online. Um, and again, most practices were doing this over time. We did the consent process very efficiently at reception uh, using a form that people could tick off. And once it, uh, yeah, we, ha- we, we had to use a paper form, but we also put up big posters in the waiting room with the same consent questions. So whilst people were coming in, they could look at it and think about it. And then they could tick that off and then they went through to the vaccination area they saw the doctor or nurse and uh, generally within five minutes they were in and out and then 15 minutes waiting Um, so we found we could do large volumes as long as we'd set up in advance and we had all the vaccines drawn up in advance and again that's a little bit tricky because you don't want to do too many and end up wasting vials so uh, as you get towards the end of the day, we had a, also had a list of people who couldn't make it, get into the, an appointment on that day. And we'd call them and get them to come in. And sometimes we'd just ask people off the street uh, if they wanted a vaccine. So we tried to use as many of the vials, because once you open it up, six dose vial, you wanted to use it uh, efficiently. And, and uh, it was a really good system. We had a chief nurse appointed. So we spent a lot of time getting the modelling right to be able to do the volumes.
0: So you actually went out onto the street and just saw if anyone wanted a jab.
1: Yeah, for the at the at the end of the day, if we had spare vaccines or people had cancelled, because you, if you book, say, 200 for a session or 300 or 100, it doesn't matter. There's always a few uh, people, a small percentage who drop out. So we had a reserve list. What, what saved us time was ensuring our staff were really well trained, so having a high-quality system at the front, making sure people were pre-registered online before they came in, uh, which saves a lot of time because you can spend 10, 15 minutes sometimes registering a person. And initially we thought it'd be mainly our patients from our practice, but we found over time that people were just calling in from everywhere. Uh, not having people make bookings over the phone, so going through electronic systems makes a really, really big difference. Having a consent form that's simple and easy to follow with all the questions uh, very clearly articulated. Having a concierge also walking around in the pre-vaccination area, talking to people if they have a question, that also helped. So we, used, we really follow what Makesh did. We had people at every point at the front door, uh, um, at the concierge, and these were not um, medical professionals. These were support admin staff and working on a process where we could aff- effectively get them to the vaccinator as quickly as possible, because once you've done that, the vaccination part is actually relatively quick and easy if the vaccines are drawn up. So we had nurses in the back room who were rotating, either drawing up vaccines every hour or actually giving vaccines.
0: And so, what apps did you use for pre-registering online and making the appointment?
1: Yeah, so there are a number of uh, there are a number of appointment uh, uh, software programs. And uh, initially, I think we were using a product called HealthSite, which is I think now been acquired by Health Engine. Uh, and that and that, then we of course we integrated into the, the national booking platform that, that's run by Health Direct. Uh, and we spent a bit of time helping working with them to ensure that it was actually seamless and the information was correct because there were quite a few challenges logistically in the early days when the technology wasn't quite right. And then that integrated into our clinical software program, which is best practice. And of course, at the end of the day, you've got to upload it to the air. Um, so end-to-end process, but appointing a chief nurse to manage this across our groups was really instrumental. So ha- having a system and having people who understood how to do this efficiently and effectively, and then monitoring afterwards to see what we'd learned. So the PDSA process, Plan, Do, Study, Act, uh, we we put hours and hours into this to get it right, and uh, we've been generally regarded as probably one of the you know lead lead setters in, in in terms of how how to be able to do volumes in general practice.
0: How did you shave time to do PDSA to do the review?
1: Ah, uh, I I think you know there's this the, the general thought in many practices we just haven't got time to sit down and have meetings. But the problem is if you don't plan time to do meetings, then you don't plan to how to do things more efficiently going forward so we did a lot of it by telehealth we, we've got because the number of clinics we um, we had we ensured that all our practice managers practice nurses were available at certain times sometimes we would just call meetings at relatively short notice after hours so a lot of it was done admittedly after hours and a lot of thinking was done on weekends but it was a crisis and we needed to build capacity so we'd allow half an hour 45 minutes on whatever tele platform anyone was using and we'd make sure that we kept minutes and action points, and we followed it through. Uh, Look, I I spend a lot of time working with peak bodies, the RACGP. I've been on the board of Peninsula Health, where I chaired the Quality, Safety and Clinical Governance Committee. So I do understand the value of setting up meetings where you have very clear action points and an agenda, and you work through it, and you make sure you capture those points, and then at the next meeting, you follow up what you've learned and and pdsa is a great way of doing rapid change because you learn something and if it doesn't work you change it we were continually changing things in the first few weeks by having these just short sharp post session or meetings or pre-session meetings
0: how often would you have your meetings
1: uh look in the first uh probably three weeks we were probably doing one every day we were actually one of our meetings actually filmed on four corners so four corners did a session on us back in about april last year and they capture one of our meetings uh which was done in in the waiting room we'd close off the waiting room after hours or before hours and we'd just run a, a short meeting and we'd video people in
0: Of the shortcuts or time savers that you found with handling the number of calls, sick people calling up, people unable to come in?
1: Uh, Look, calls are a real challenge, and one of the things that COVID has done is totally disrupt the way that um, medical centres deal with calls because you were getting volumes of calls uh, either because of an announcement by a minister or some change in a rule, and all of a sudden the next day. Every practice got swamped with hundreds, thousands of calls. You weren't getting calls, the typical calls that you got from your regular clientele. It was just calls from anywhere. We found that our call volumes were just massive. We counted on one morning we were getting a few thousand calls in the morning. But again, we had an advantage because we'd set up a, um, an interactive voice recording process. We controlled that ourselves. So we'd set it up probably 15 years ago. My son and I, early adopters of technology, and we implemented VoIP technology into our practice about 15 years ago uh, we understand how to work that and how to change the call um, cycle so we did some studies on where the calls were coming from and what we were finding is that the uh, people that needed to get through not just the people wanting an appointment for a vaccination but the regular patients could not get through and they were spending sometimes an hour on, on the phone and it's great when you've got an IVR and we all know that if you're calling Qantas or somebody else and you're next in line you're next in line or you're 100th in line and you wait now well that's great except who wants to wait an hour or 2 hours when you want to get through to a medical center. So we changed some of the IVR flow to say if you're calling for a vaccine, please log on to our website www.mediseven.com.au, 7comau and you can make an appointment there. And we keep reiterating that to take the volume away uh, to the point and or if you've got it, if you're ringing for an appointment for a routine condition or a test result, press 2, press 3, press 4. It took us quite a while and we did quite a number of scripts my uh, General Manager Mark Donato and I worked on a length over a number of weeks to keep refining this. And eventually we got it to a point where we could drop the volumes. We also um, put some people into a dedicated call center to take the call overflow. So we had one or two people actually taking calls that eventually got through that couldn't go to a practice that were unusual requirements. So we made sure we had a human at the end of the line. It took a lot of work though to refine those processes to get them working smoothly.
0: What advice do you have for people who might just have a very small practice? Like I understand you've got or have had a number of clinics. What if you've just got one clinic and you don't necessarily have this kind of uh, telephone tech behind you?
1: Yeah. So look, that's challenging when you work on your own and you're isolated or you're the solo doctor with maybe two or three support staff uh, and you don't have a network of people to go to, but that's the advantage of then joining a peak body and becoming a member of the RACGP or the AMA, and getting some of the information that flows from that. So um, I, I've been on the RACGP Expert Committee for um, e-health and Practice Technology and Systems uh, for probably 14, 15 years. Uh, I've chaired that committee for six years and uh, I stepped down from that role about two years ago. We've developed a huge number of resources. We have you know, people who are from small practices, large practices, uh, people who are interested in particular aspects of technology, people interested in quality improvement, who, who have been on that committee over the years, people interested in data, and we develop really great resources based on the surveys that the college produce, uh, undertakes every year. And those resources are really good practical guides as to how you can implement things. So through COVID, uh, the, the team was putting out, uh, you know, two, three times a week, little tips, little updates. And the benefit of then reading those is you can implement those fairly quickly because they've been tested by other people. Or if you've got something to contribute, you can just send an email back saying, hey, this doesn't make sense or this doesn't work or I've heard about this. So being part of a professional organisation, I think, is absolutely critical, particularly in the current times.
0: So we'll include a link to some of those resources in the show notes for the podcast. That would be great. Um, Now, tell me a little bit about how you're helping patients in the community through Food Bank.
1: Yeah, so we um, have one, of, one of the things that we think is really, really important is about uh, the social determinants of health. And it's not something you necessarily think about when you go through medical school initially. I, I think today it is, but certainly when I went through in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, it wasn't like the highest priority. But what we've increasingly found as a society is that uh, health is not just about going to see your doctor once a fortnight or once a month or whatever. It's actually about the social environment in which you live in and food security is really really important as is housing and obviously having a, a reasonable income having access to um, resources uh, food bank is a fantastic organization that is now australia-wide and what it does is provide food uh, to vulnerable individuals and it's got a credible distribution system if anyone's ever been out to any of their warehouse in Australia the work they do is phenomenal, and the interaction they have with uh, corporate Australia is also fantastic. Uh, I've been out there quite a few times. My wife actually dragged me out there about four years ago, and I, I met their CEO in Victoria, Dave McNamara. I was really impressed with what they do. So, we made a commitment to Food Bank um, many, many years ago, and we've been contributors to some of their programs, including provision of fridges out in um, various warehouses um, in rural Victoria. Uh, in, in the recent crisis, what we did is uh, we ran a, 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 a um, fundraiser with the RACGP where our organisation, on-site Doctor, uh, agreed to provide a $100,000 match grant uh, on a dollar for dollar basis with anything that was raised for the RACGP. So that that uh, particular activity is now coming to an end. And we also supported Food Bank by providing them with rapid engine testing program, which we funded. Using the, the Roche tests, and we have a we have a support team that was going up there every day and uh, testing them, and also doing remote testing. And um, we actually did detect uh, a number of positives, and we were able to keep the distribution centres up, op, open, open and operating prior to Christmas.
0: Fantastic. Well, Nathan Pinskia, thank you so much for your time today. We'll put all those links and useful tips in the show notes for the podcast. Have a great day. Thanks again.
1: Thanks, Wendy. If I just make one other comment, uh, well, one of the challenges with the general practice, particularly in a small environment is that you don't always know where to go. Um, one of the roles that I've taken on over the years is actually to work with peak bodies and lobby government to drive changes. And I know it can be very difficult out then sometimes. I know doctors feel like they're on their own and everything's being done to them. And I, I get that because <laughs> I see it every day. Uh, but where you see that happening to you, I think it's really important to reach out Don't just say, oh, that's just the way it is and we can't change it. Reach out. Sometimes you can affect change in five minutes. Sometimes it can take 20 years. But the process of continuing to engage and telling people there is an issue and something needs to be fixed means that there is a chance it will be fixed. If you don't do anything, nothing will change.
0: Well, I think that's probably a topic that's often brought up in tea rooms in practices around Australia. So thank you once again, Dr. Nathan Pinskier from Onsite Doctors.
1: Thanks, Wendy. Have a great day.
0: I'm Wendy John. You've been listening to The Tea Room. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode, you can search for us on your favourite podcast player and be sure to subscribe, leave us a review if you like. And if you've got any news tips or just want to chat, you can email me at wendy at medicalrepublic.com.au. The Tea Rooms a production of the journalists at Medical Republic. Visit medicalrepublic.com.au. to Keep up to date with all the latest news and views in general practice. And while you're there, Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. We love to keep you informed. Thanks for tuning in.